Republicans pick Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson as the party's fourth nominee for House Speaker. It's Wednesday, October 25th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Israel is calling on the head of the United Nations to resign after he referred to the government's airstrikes in Gaza as, quote, collective punishment of Palestinians. Also this hour. If I knew then what I know now, I would have declined to represent Donald Trump in these post-election challenges. Attorney Jenna Ellis becomes the fourth former Trump ally to plead guilty in the Georgia election interference case. And after a busy summer of trading players, the Boston Celtics tip off their regular season tonight with high hopes. They are one of the best teams in the NBA and have a better than good shot to win the championship. Bruins win, increasing clouds in low 70s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Heavy bombing continues in Gaza as the Israeli military continues to hit the enclave with scores of airstrikes. Hamas is still holding more than 200 hostages. The Hamas-run Palestinian Health Authority says nearly 5,800 people have been killed in Gaza. The Biden administration has cautioned Israel that the war could spread. NPR's Tom Bowman says the U.S. is watching the Mideast closely. The major concern is Iran itself getting involved somehow. That's why you see the American aircraft carries the attack aircraft, the missile defense systems that uh, will also protect U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria. By the way, I'm told this is all part of a long-standing U.S. plan to defend Israel. It's been on the shelf for some time. It's not just kind of a haphazard movement of armaments and troops. NPR's Tom Bowman reporting. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee is holding a business meeting today. They may vote on President Biden's nominee to be ambassador to Israel. It's former Treasury Secretary Jack Lew. Republicans oppose him, claiming Lew is weak on Iran. The committee may also vote on the president's nominee to be ambassador to Egypt. The House will vote later today for a speaker. House Republicans tapped Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson as their fourth nominee to run for speaker. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports he's expected to face the same challenges as the three previous contenders. It's unclear at this point if any Republican nominees can muster a majority to win the speakership. Justin Crow, a political science professor at Williams College, says ideology appears to have prevailed over pragmatism. The problem is that they've got such a tight margin now that uh, a small group of, of individuals acting not in terms of what's best for the party, but in terms of what is best for themselves or in terms of their own individual perspectives. The House has been effectively paralyzed since October 3rd, when a group of hard-right Republicans ousted Kevin McCarthy from from his leadership role. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The first major winter storm of the season is bearing down on the Northwest. NPR's Kirk Siegler reports there are warnings about hazardous driving conditions and possible highway closures due to freezing rain and heavy snow. This storm is expected to stretch from the Cascades in Washington to the northern Rockies, where a flash freeze is in the forecast for morning commutes from Spokane, Washington, into northern Idaho. The storm initially is bringing rain to lower elevations, then a hard freeze, then heavy snow. The National Weather Service is warning that visibility on highways in western Montana could be less than a half mile at times. The authorities are advising emergency travel only. In Montana, up to six inches of snow is in the forecast, and upwards of a foot could fall in the mountains of central Idaho before the storm rolls onto the northern plains. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Boise. 
You're listening to NPR News from Washington. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Boston's police commissioner is rejecting a high-profile claim of excessive force by one of his captains. Captain John Denalecki was accused of slamming a Dorchester resident to the ground during a 2019 altercation. An internal investigation by the department sustained those claims, but Commissioner Michael Cox ordered a re-examination of the incident. He says that investigation found Denalecki only violated one department regulation. Denalecki now faces a three-day suspension for neglecting his duty during the incident. There is still no delivery date for nearly 300 new train cars the state initially ordered during Deval Patrick's administration. That's according to T-General Manager Phil Ang. The state has received about 100 red and orange line cars from the Chinese company CRRC already. That's short of the 400 cars the company was supposed to deliver by this September. A new report shows offshore wind developments in the Gulf of Maine could have a big impact on New England. Mara Hoplomazian has more. The report was commissioned by the New Hampshire Department of Energy. It says in the area being considered for wind projects, normal wind conditions could produce enough power to fully meet the needs of New England states for almost 40 percent of the year. That jumps to more than 70 percent of the year when large capacity energy storage is factored in. The report also says the state could see economic benefits, including more than 3,500 jobs. Commercial fishing businesses could suffer, the report says, if some sites become unavailable for fishing during high winds or other conditions. The report says there are some threats to marine mammals and sea turtles from offshore wind operations. The structures could also affect birds and bats. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Mara Hoplomazian. The Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Boston is offering up several vacant buildings to help house migrant families arriving in the state. This follows a letter Cardinal Sean O'Malley sent to parishes this week calling on leaders to help the families ahead of winter. Father Brian Hare is the Secretary of Health and Social Services for the Archdiocese. He says the state still needs to approve the buildings for use. There are eight buildings that I think could be really helpful, four of them in the Boston area and four outside. Father Hare says the Cardinal is also asking people to donate warm clothing to the St. Vincent de Paul Society. State officials expect emergency shelters to reach capacity within the next week. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Renewal by Anderson, supporter of the American Cancer Society. Information about Renewal by Anderson's October campaign to help defeat cancer is at RenewalByAndersonCares.com. The Bruins are still perfect so far this season. The team shut out the Blackhawks in Chicago last night. Final score was 3-0. to zero. The Celtics' regular season gets underway tonight. They start with a road game against the New York Knicks. Tip-off is at 7. Coming up later this hour, we'll be joined by Boston Globe Celtics reporter Gary Washburn. He'll tell us what to expect from the team this year. Breezy today with increasing clouds throughout the day. Temperatures will be in the low 70s. Tonight, mostly cloudy with lows in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, we return to sunny skies and temperatures rise to the mid-70s. Right now, it's 52 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Sammy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Israel's military forces are gathering along the border of the Gaza Strip, apparently in preparation for a ground invasion that Israel says will be necessary to eliminate the Hamas fighting force that attacked southern Israel earlier this month. At the Pentagon, U.S. military leaders are keeping in close contact with their Israeli counterparts. And President Biden has continued to express strong support for Israel and also cautioned against an escalation of the conflict that draws in other regional players. General Frank McKenzie has studied just this sort of scenario as commander of U.S. Central Command, which oversees army operations in the Middle East and coordinates with allies. He retired last year and is now at the University of South Florida, where he directs the Global and National Security Institute. And he is with us now to tell us more. General McKenzie, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Michelle. I'm glad to be with you. You were actually in Israel a few months ago with a group of retired senior military leaders, and I understand that you visited the border checkpoints in Gaza. So given that, what kind of fighting is likely in that sort of environment? Well, it's, a, it's one of the densest urban environments in the world. That's the first thing that captures you when you come up to the border fence and, 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 and observe it. It's uh, high-rise buildings, uh, very densely packed in a very small area. It's going to be a uniquely challenging environment uh, for the Israelis. And I would think right now what they're doing is they're practicing what we call your tactics, techniques, and procedures, how you're actually going to do the operation. And I think that the jury's still out on how they're going to do it. Is it going to be a, you know, a broad front attack? Are they going to go in narrowly? Are they going to m- uh, merge with their special operations forces and conduct pinprick raids? I think all of those things are on the table uh, as, they, uh, as they bring their forces up to the border and prepare to go in. The one thing that I believe is certain is I think they're going to go in. It's just a question of how. But, but you know, for me, the larger issue is, and I know, I know that the IDF is grappling with this, what's the end state? What do you want it to look like on the other end of the operation? Uh, you know, what kind of governance are you going to put in place there? I don't think you want to occupy that territory forever. I think you, they, I know they're thinking very hard about that, and that really needs to be the source of a lot of, uh, a lot of careful study because we, we, the United States, have not always gotten that same problem right. They have an opportunity here to think about it before you go in because once operations commence, they're going to take on a intensity, scope, and drive that, that is unique to those who have not experienced it before. So before you go in, you want to try to envision where you want to be at the end of it, and I, I believe they're trying to do that right now. That, that is obviously a, a great concern. And also, I think, I just look, I think it is fair to say that the concern is what would be the impact on civilians, given that the understanding is that Hamas has always been interspersed with the civilian population. And of course, it bears remembering that there are Americans there right now. There are people of other nationalities right there. Do you have a sense of whether the Israelis have a plan to, to try to protect civilians? I think two things are worth noting in this regard. First of all, the Israelis are going to try very hard to mitigate civilian casualties. They have elaborate procedures for it. I've been exposed to those procedures. Many of them are modeled on the things we do. Uh, and but, but I also know that mistakes are going to be made and there are going to be unanticipated civilian casualties. We should just know and recognize that right now, despite the very best efforts of the Israelis. And they will go to great lengths to minimize civilian casualties. On the other hand, and here's the other element of this equation that is really quite disturbing, what Hamas is going to do 
is they're going to try in every way they can to maximize civilian casualties. They need that event to occur to operate in the information space. So in effect, while yes, there are 200 plus hostages there, in, in effect, really the entire civilian population of Gaza is being held hostage by Hamas. And they're going to use them as human shields. And they're going to try to uh, get the Israelis into situations where they have to make some very difficult choices about what to strike and what not to strike. They do that by placing their rockets and missiles in mosques and schools and hospitals, their command posts and places like this. It's an old tried and true tactic. And they will employ that uh, to, 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 uh, to great effect. Uh, in this uh, upcoming campaign. And I, it also bears pointing out that that there are American citizens there and citizens of other nationalities who just happen to be there visiting family who are not technically hostages. And I just, uh, I think that is of grave concern to a lot of Americans. Before we let you go, as briefly as you can, how likely do you think it is that this war could escalate into a regional conflict? Uh, I think it's uniquely possible. It's possible because Lebanese Hezbollah sits on the northern border of Israel. They'll calculate their entry based on their own strategic self-interest. They share a vision for the destruction of Israel. If they think they have an opportunity to come in, they will come in. They won't come in because of what's happening in Gaza necessarily. They'll come in to satisfy their own self-interest. Same thing with Iran. The forces we're putting in the theater now are all designed to deter that activity. Okay. That is retired General Frank McKenzie. He is now the executive director of the Global and National Security Institute at the University of South Florida. We reached him in town. But General, thank you so much for sharing this expertise with us. Thank you, Michelle. Have a good day. Bye-bye. 23 days until a government shutdown and still no Speaker of the House, which means that Congress is at a standstill. Yeah, and Republicans haven't even begun to work through the divisions that got everyone here in the first place. Yesterday, GOP House members voted and nominated Tom Emmer of Minnesota. That was just for a few hours, though, because he had to drop out when he couldn't lock down the votes to be elected by the full House. Then lawmakers went back to the drawing board and nominated a fourth person to take former Speaker Kevin McCarthy's place, Congressman Mike Johnson from Louisiana. We're going to serve the people of this country. We're going to restore their faith in this Congress. You're going to see a new form of government, and we are going to move this quickly. This group here is ready to govern, and we're going to govern well. We're going to do what's right by the people. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh has been clocking some long hours watching all this, and she's with us now again. Deirdre, good morning. Good morning, Michelle. So can Congressman Johnson get elected by the full House? That still remains to be seen, but the plan is for the House to vote around noon today. He won the nomination inside the GOP conference, but as we've seen over and over again, he's going to need 217 votes if all members are present and voting on the House floor. Democrats are expected to stay united and vote for their leader, Hakeem Jeffries. So tell us, tell us more about Johnson, and I'm, really, I'm interested in what he means by this new form of government. He's 51, a social conservative and a member of the House Judiciary Committee. He was elected in 2016. Johnson's really a top Trump loyalist. He was an impeachment manager for Trump's team back in 2020. He's a constitutional lawyer, and he was one of the Republicans drafting arguments against certifying the electoral count from some states on January 6th. He's also currently a member of GOP leadership. That's been a strike against others who've won and had to drop out, like Emmer and Steve Scalise. So uh, it's unclear to me in terms of this new form of government that he's talking about. And you mentioned that Johnson is a Trump loyalist. How much is President Trump influencing this whole process? You know, a lot. You know, Tom Emmer, who won the nomination yesterday, was forced to withdraw, as you said, hours later after Trump took to social media and called Emmer a rhino, a Republican in name only. 
Trump's support wasn't enough to elect the person he endorsed. That was Ohio Republican Jim Jordan, who was forced to drop out after three failed votes on the floor. But Trump's opposition was a huge factor in derailing Emmer's really short stint as the speaker nominee. Emmer's vote to certify the 2020 election became an issue for him with his colleagues. And now Republicans are turning to someone who helped lead the charge to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Okay, so I keep going back to what Representative Johnson said about this new form of government. Has how these last three weeks, what does this say about the Republicans' ability to govern? And what do they say about it? It's really been chaos, and Republicans have been openly venting and frustrated that the House hasn't been able to function. We're now less than a month away from the deadline to avoid a government shutdown, and the thing that got Republicans into this mess when a group of hard-right members mad that the Speaker passed a bill with Democrats is now going to have to happen if Congress can avoid a shutdown. There's also concern about being unable to vote to help Israel, a top ally who's at war. After Republicans nominated Johnson last night, there was sort of a mini GOP pep rally. Some say he's someone who can lead their party and unite the factions that have been at war with each other, and maybe they finally turned a corner. But all of this infighting has really left a mark. Hardliners from solid red districts basically say compromise is unacceptable. Those who represent swing districts say the Republicans won the majority in 2022 to show they can get things done. And this messy infighting makes them look incompetent. And if Representative Johnson does get the gavel, what's on the agenda first? I mean, that nomination to uh, avoid a shutdown on November 17th, there's this huge foreign aid package that his own party is split on. Johnson opposes more money for Ukraine. Uh, we also expect Republicans will focus back on an impeachment inquiry. That's something Johnson was a big part of. That is NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Deirdre, I hope you get some rest today. Thanks, Michelle. After a roller coaster season with injuries and a late resurgence, the Philadelphia Phillies ultimately fell to the Arizona Diamondbacks 4-2 in Game 7 of the National League Championship Series last night. From member station WHYY in Philadelphia, Corey Sharber reports that missing out in the World Series stings for Phillies fans but won't take away from their love for their team. Fans were leaving Citizens Bank Park even before the final pitch was thrown since they knew the Phillies would lose to the Diamondbacks despite taking a two-game lead to kick off this series. Pain, pain, and more pain like it has been for a very long time being a Philly fan. So we're used to it. That was Phillies fan Kevin Dunn following the loss. After missing out on the playoffs for more than a decade, the Phillies won the National League pennant last year, bringing high expectations into this season. Phillies manager Rob Thompson congratulated the Diamondbacks on their victory and said he was proud of his team. I love them all. I really do. So it is it is disappointing, but, you know, it's it's tough to get back to this position two years in a row. It is. But they fought like hell to get here. And, uh, you know, we came up short. And that's baseball sometimes. Some fans stuck around outside the ballpark waiting for rides and reminiscing on the season, including Julie Sebastian. While she fell down after the loss, she said this season has been a great experience. Hearing the whole stadium cheering and singing all the songs, it was really amazing. So even though they you know, lost tonight, I think next year it'll be a great season. Everybody will come back. Meanwhile, the Arizona Diamondbacks will head to Arlington, Texas to take on the Rangers in the World Series. Game one starts Friday night. For NPR News, I'm Corey Sharber in Philadelphia. 
This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBOR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, forecasters are warning of a nightmare scenario as a Category 5 hurricane takes aim at the Mexican resort town of Acapulco. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AAF CPAs. Accounting, audit, tax, advisory, and wealth management for nonprofits, commercial companies, and individuals. AAFCPA.com. And Boston Lyric Opera with La Cenerentola, Cinderella, a new BLO production set in modern day Boston, November 8th through 12th at the Emerson Cutler Majestic Theater. Martin Scorsese's new film, Killers of the Flower Moon, celebrates Osage culture with help from members of the Osage Nation. The movie was going to be made with or without us, and instead of making it without us, they made it with us in such a huge, huge way. I'm Mary Louise Kelly here from the indigenous people who worked on the movie, both on and off screen, on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again to 90.9 WBUR at the end of your day today. We'll warm up to highs in the low 70s today. Clouds will move in throughout the day, and by this evening, it'll be mostly overcast. Temperatures fall to the upper 50s tonight. Tomorrow, even warmer with highs in the mid-70s, and it'll be mostly sunny. It's 52 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Subaru. Subaru has donated more than $51 million to support the adoption, rescue, transport, and health of more than 420,000 animals. Learn more at Subaru.com slash pets. From Carnegie Corporation of New York. Supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Richard Roundtree, who died yesterday at the age of 81, was easily one of the coolest actors ever. Then you Shaft. But your lovely self it is. And I'm ready. Can you dig it? In the 1971 movie Shaft, Roundtree was an early black action hero and became an icon of black film. NPR's Netta Ulibi has our remembrance. Who is the man that would risk his neck for his brother man? Can you dig it? When the acclaimed photographer Gordon Parks made a movie about a black private eye that came out just three years after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he cast a complete unknown, a former college football player and model who commanded the screen from the very first minutes of its opening sequence, says film scholar Novotny Lawrence. Gordon Parks opens the movie with this guy. He comes up out of the subway, he's walking down the streets of New York City, and he's owning it. John Shaft was a new figure in film. Because he's unapologetically black and he has a swag, he's dressed to the nines. 
he's a bad hush your mouth. How come a couple of cats from Harlem come downtown this morning looking for John Shaft? As Shaft, Roundtree clapped back at white cops who said dumb things. Well, they're soul brothers. They came down so I could teach them to handshake. And he busted mobsters. My name is John Shaft. Freeze. He gave black people that icon. In the 70s, Shaft. Shaft was a huge success. It helped create an entire genre, black exploitation. Roundtree went on to star in a few Shaft sequels, but Novotny Lawrence says it was hard to become an A-list actor in the 1970s by revolutionizing black masculinity on screen. So I think his legacy is one that we need to think of in terms of perseverance. With more than 150 movie and TV credits, ranging from Roots to Desperate Housewives to Being Mary Jane. And Lawrence says Roundtree went public with his 1993 diagnosis with breast cancer. And became a figure to demonstrate men, it's okay. Shaft had breast cancer, right? Richard Roundtree died yesterday from pancreatic cancer. Actor Samuel L. Jackson, who starred with Roundtree in a couple of later Shaft films, suggested on social media that Roundtree was surely walking that walk in heaven. That unforgettable Shaft stride that left deep footprints in film and in American culture. Netta Ulibi, NPR News. Change can be scary, but for the musician we're about to meet, the big changes in his life became seeds for new songs. Here's NPR's Lindsay Toddy. A few years ago, Jack Tatum moved from Los Angeles to the smaller, quieter city of Richmond in his home state of Virginia. While he says it was the right decision, he had some misgivings. There's a lot of things that I hate about stereotypical suburban culture, but I have this soft spot for strip malls and big box stores. And like, like there's something about my upbringing that I feel like was quintessentially American. Tatum explored that inner conflict in a song with his band, Wild Nothing. This song was a little bit about making fun of myself and my own fears of moving to a smaller city and, and choosing this life of slowing down, settling down. For Jack Tatum, moving to Richmond was just the beginning. He soon took on another challenge, starting a family. Becoming a, a father, at least for me, there was this immediate thought of like, oh, I don't want to mess this up. I don't want to do the wrong thing. I don't want to let this person down. I did sort of have these wonders about how am I going to tour in the same way now? How am I going to find the time to write or like, you know, because the thing was, is like as soon as he was born, it was like, I want to be a present parent. I want to be like the best dad that I can. And so you have to change things about your life. For Tatum, the challenges of fatherhood brought new challenges to his marriage. Things are changing and, and our life doesn't look the way that it used to look. And I think in order to get through that, there's going to have to be adaptation. Don't always treat you right, but 
This is a song about recognizing that things are not good, but knowing that you have to, to leave the door open for reconciliation. While these trials were new to Jack Tatum, another song grapples with an issue he's dealt with since the beginning of his career. The first couple years that we toured as a band, I found playing live really difficult. I felt very much under a microscope, and, and I think it kind of exacerbated a lot of my already present issues with self-doubt. And I think for a long time I dealt with it through drinking or drugs or seeking validation in ways that weren't necessary. But these days, he says, those inner voices of doubt are no longer quite so loud now that he has new priorities on his mind. Musician was sort of all that I defined myself as throughout my whole 20s. And I think now, having this new role as a father, music will always be one of the most important things in my life, but I no longer feel that it's all that I am. The new album from Wild Nothing is called Hold. It's out Friday. Lindsay Toddy, NPR News. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 745 on WBUR's Morning Edition, Boston Globe reporter Gary Washburn tells us what we can expect from the Celtics as their regular season gets underway tonight. It's 729. After seeing news alerts all day, it's hard sometimes to understand the full story. Get the WBUR mobile app and we'll be there with context and perspective live. Listen anywhere on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, sponsoring Discovery Museum's more than 2,500 traveling science workshops for Massachusetts schools, and Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Hurricane Otis made landfall this morning near Acapulco, Mexico, as a Category 5 storm. Its top sustained winds were at 165 miles per hour when it came ashore. Daniel Brown is a senior specialist at the National Hurricane Center in Florida. Those uh, winds will um, could potentially cause catastrophic damage along with uh, a life-threatening storm surge, and uh, we're expecting uh, flooding rainfall to occur uh, in the mountains as it moves inland. Forecasters expect Otis to produce 5 to 10 inches of rainfall in Mexico, with some areas receiving more than a foot. House Republicans are looking to GOP Congressman Mike Johnson of Louisiana to replace ousted Speaker Kevin McCarthy. 
Johnson became the party's fourth nominee yesterday after Republican Tom Emmer of Minnesota withdrew from the race when it became clear he would not get enough support to win the speaker's gavel. Johnson was sounding upbeat last night, speaking to reporters. Democracy is messy sometimes, but it is our system. This conference that you see, this House Republican majority, is united. Like Emmer, two previous nominees, House Majority Leader Steve Scalise and Ohio Republican Jim Jordan, could not generate enough support to replace McCarthy. A vote on Johnson's nomination is expected in the full House today. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. State officials estimate that some 5,000 children in the Massachusetts family shelter system are too young for school. That means they may be missing out on services and enrichment that classrooms can offer. WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel reports there's a new push to get these young children better access to play spaces and activities in their shelters. Research shows a stimulating environment is key for brain development in the first few years of life. But advocates say more than 3,000 families are living in overflow shelters that often lack toys, books, and playrooms. Several state agencies are taking steps to address this problem. Amy Kershaw is the Massachusetts Commissioner of Early Education and Care. I would say we're deep in the mapping of where the families currently are and where their needs are. State grants are helping support 15 new shelter playgroups with more on the way. And the state is also making it easier for parents to apply for subsidized child care. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. The Boston City Council will consider a resolution today on the renaming of Faneuil Hall. The hall's builder and namesake, Peter Faneuil, owned enslaved people and profited from the sale of trafficked African captives. The Public Facilities Commission has the ultimate power to change the building's name. The Red Sox have a new head of baseball operations. Sources tell the Boston Globe the team offered the chief of baseball operations job to former Red Sox pitcher Craig Breslow. Breslow pitched professionally for 17 seasons. He's coming back to the Sox after being assistant general manager for the Chicago Cubs. Breslow replaces Heim Bloom, who was fired last month. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. The Bruins beat the Blackhawks 3-0 in Chicago last night. The team is now 6-0 to start the season. The Celtics will be in New York tonight for their first regular season game. They'll take on the Knicks beginning at 7. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we'll hear from Boston Globe Celtics reporter Gary Washburn. He'll give us the rundown on what we can expect from the team. It'll gradually grow mostly cloudy today. Temperatures will rise to highs in the low 70s. Those fall to the upper 50s tonight. The clouds move out overnight, making way for a mostly sunny day tomorrow with highs in the mid-70s. Right now it's 52 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Drexel University, whose cooperative education program works to empower students to explore future careers and discover their ideal profession before graduation. This is experiential education. More at drexel.edu. From Charles Schwab, committed to putting clients first with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help. Learn more at schwab.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. A monster Category 5 hurricane has made landfall near the Mexican resort town of Acapulco. Hurricane Otis went from a tropical storm to a top-of-the-scale cyclone in a matter of hours. And forecasters say the effects could be catastrophic. NPR's Ada Peralta joins us now from his base in Mexico City. Ada, good morning. Good morning, Michelle. So first of all, where is this hurricane and what are the conditions? I mean, this is as serious a situation as it gets with hurricanes. Uh, forecasters at the National Hurricane Center are using dire language, uh, and they don't tend to do that. In a discussion last night, forecasters said this is a, quote, nightmare scenario. Uh, Hurricane Otis went from a tropical storm yesterday morning to a Category 5 hurricane with maximum sustained winds of 165 miles per hour. And a Category 5, we should remind everyone, is the top rating for a hurricane on the Saffir-Simpson scale. And Hurricane Otis made landfall this morning very near Acapulco. And mm. Acapulco is this famous resort town uh, on the Pacific coast of Mexico. And it's a city with more than 1 million people. We're already seeing videos from tourists and high-rise buildings where the windows have caved. We're seeing windows of patients at hospitals taking cover in rain-soaked hallways. The iconic bay of the city of Acapulco is now dark, uh, and there are reports of serious damage to buildings uh, in downtown wow. Acapulco. Wow, that sounds, wow, that's very dramatic. And you said, yeah. you know, as, so you were just saying, yesterday's, yesterday morning, a tropical storm, now a Category 5. Is this unusual? I mean, we've, we've been seeing this more and more, but this is unusual and stunning. I mean, even the computer models got it wrong. They didn't predict this fast, this explosive and intensification. Uh, meteorologists say uh, Hurricane Otis has broken records already. It went from 65 miles an hour, uh, winds of 65 miles per hour to 160 miles an hour in a little more than half a day. Uh, one of the fastest intensifications by a hurricane in history. Uh, but what's also worrying is that this part of Mexico has not seen storms like this in the past. The National Hurricane Center says, quote, there are no hurricanes on record even close to this intensity for this part of Mexico. The last big hurricane to affect this part of Mexico was Hurricane Carlotta in 2012, and that was a Category 2 hurricane. So what's the Mexican government saying? Are they prepared? They're taking this seriously. Uh, the army has deployed some 8,000 troops. The local government there says it's ready to open nearly 400 shelters. Uh, and it has, and it, it did evacuate uh, people from lower ground. But look, up until last night, the government was preparing for a regular hurricane that would make landfall somewhere north of Acapulco. And what we have this morning is something totally different. We have a direct hit on a major Mexican city by a Category 5 hurricane. Um, overnight, President Andres López Obrador uh, uh, said, uh, told people uh, to please evacuate, to please listen to authorities and seek higher ground. Uh, but it's looking very likely that this storm will cause a lot of destruction and a lot of heartbreak. That's NPR's Ada Peralta reporting from Mexico City. Ada, thank you so much. Thank you, Michelle. Four co-defendants in the election interference case against Donald Trump in Georgia have now pleaded guilty to some charges in exchange for leniency. They've also agreed to cooperate with Fulton County prosecutors in their criminal racketeering case against Trump and more than a dozen other defendants. Now, yesterday, former Trump lawyer Jenna Ellis admitted to a felony charge of aiding and abetting false statements in Trump's bid to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election in Georgia. If I knew then what I know now, I would have declined to represent Donald Trump in these post-election challenges. I look back on this whole experience with deep remorse. 
We turn now to former federal prosecutor Harry Sandick to talk more about the implications of these plea deals. All right, so Ellis there, two other lawyers, Sidney Powell, Kenneth Chesbro, and a bail bondsman, Scott Hall, took plea deals. Harry, how do these agreements help the prosecution? Sure. These are significant benefits to the prosecution. First of all, they indicted a lot of people together. These get a few of the defendants out of the case. Secondly, these are lawyers who were advising uh, former President Trump on the precise issues that are the subject of the indictment, and they're now admitting that they broke the law when they did that. They've made themselves available to testify against President Trump, Rudy Giuliani, and the other defendants if that's something that the prosecutors think would be useful. And they've done it in a public way with apologies and public statements, making clear to uh, the entire world that they regret what they did. They know that what they were doing was wrong. For these defendants, they also took, I think, a very favorable deal. They were facing, on the one hand, strong evidence and potentially years in jail and multiple felony counts, including racketeering. And on the other hand, a plea resolution that allows them to avoid jail. Uh, so this is a very favorable deal for them as well. How much more weight does it have when a lawyer accepts a plea deal? Because they should be completely aware of what's at stake here. I, I think that's right. And, you know, these were people who were involved in some sense in crafting the strategy. Uh, you heard Ellis talking about uh, working with other lawyers, which I think many people presume includes Rudy Giuliani, uh, President Trump's, uh, you know, top lawyer during this time period. Uh, and it's a very sad thing as a lawyer to see other lawyers, uh, you know, having engaged in criminal activity. And it's a fitting and appropriate that they acknowledge it. Uh, under the Georgia law, if they comply with the rules of their probation and complete their community service, cooperate with the prosecutors, I believe their uh, convictions, in fact, will be uh, erased at the end of their case. So it's a very good deal for them. Um, and it's a very important deal for the prosecutors. So good deal all around. But what happens if, say, one or more of these defendants all of a sudden changes their mind? So in general, you have a very hard time getting back your guilty plea. Um, it's a solemn thing to plead guilty to a crime. You do it under oath. In addition, the district attorney has taken videotaped sworn proffers, uh, statements from the defendants. Um, so if they do decide to go back and say, oh, no, actually, <laughs> my bad, none of that happened, uh, I think they can be pretty easily prosecuted for making false statements. And at that point, there would be no possibility of leniency. Will they be able to practice law again? So it depends on the rules of the states in which they practice. Uh, to the extent that their convictions are eventually vacated, uh, which can happen under the uh, relevant Georgia sort of a first-time offender statute, uh, that's their case. To the extent that they've accepted responsibility and pled guilty rather than putting the government to its uh, proof, that will help their case. And the prosecutors also stipulated that these were not crimes of moral turpitude, which is a term of art. Uh, if you commit that type of crime, it's much easier to be suspended and disbarred. That's former federal prosecutor Harry Sandick in New York. Harry, thanks. Thank you very much.
This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBMR's Morning Edition, there are growing concerns among U.S. officials about what an Israeli invasion of Gaza could look like and the potential for the conflict to spread regionally. Increasing clouds today in low 70s, mostly cloudy tonight in the upper 50s, mostly sunny tomorrow in the mid-70s. Right now it's 52 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways, ElliottHotel.com. And Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at MPArchitectsBoston.com. A new spin-off of General Electric, headquartered in Cambridge, is set to launch in April. The new branch called GE Vernova will focus on the company's natural gas businesses. Company officials tell the Boston Globe 200 people are expected to work in the Cambridge office. Boston Medical Center plans to launch a new economic justice hub for the families of pediatric patients. The new hub will expand tax and financial services for those families. It will also help them find jobs. BMC officials tell the Boston Business Journal they also plan to fund a study that focuses on the connection between more income and loss of public benefits. One of the country's oldest ski mountains in New Hampshire will open will open this season. That's after Black Mountain said it would close because of lack of staff and competition with larger resorts in New England. Now the mountain is getting help from Indy Pass, a group that provides a lift ticket pass to independent mountains in the region. Eric Morganson is the managing director of Indy Pass. He says what's happening at Black Mountain could easily happen at other smaller ski areas. You're absolutely going to see this situation repeat itself. Running a ski area is not getting easier, and the consolidation into a handful of uh, large operators is going to cause, you know, continued stress on these multi-generational mom-and-pop operations. Black Mountain has been open every season since 1935. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations, including schools, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The last time we saw the Boston Celtics, their season was coming to a heartbreaking end. Butler and Grant Williams will defend. Shot clock at seven. Butler with a three. Bring it up for Jimmy Butler. His third made three of the evening. That was the call on TNT from Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals when the Seas lost to the Miami Heat. The new season tips off tonight as the Celtics visit the New York Knicks. For a preview, we're joined now by Gary Washburn from the Boston Globe. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for doing this. How is the team moving past how things ended last year? Well, they've retooled their roster their mentality was they can't just run the same team back and hope for the different results. So 
and made a, a few major trades, trading Marcus Smart away to get Chris Porzingis, a uh, seven foot three, very versatile center, and then uh, a couple of weeks ago acquiring Drew Holiday in exchange for Malcolm Brogdon and Robert Williams. So now you have two new starters in the lineup. So this year is dramatically different than last year's. Peyton Pritchard got a four-year, $30 million contract from the team after requesting a trade. Do you think he'll step up this year? Uh, Yeah, it seems like that's the tone uh, that he's taking the approach, that it's time for him to step forward. The team expects it. He expects it. He's worked hard, and it's time for him to get consistent playing time. I think uh, over the years he hasn't had really a fair shake at times in terms of when he's going to play. So this year it seems to be that there's communication on both sides between him and the coaching staff is better, and he should step up and be a contributor. What about when it comes to the team's health? How does it look heading into the season? Fortunately for them, they're completely healthy as the season approaches. Porzingis has been a player over the years who has dealt with a series of injuries, but he's healthy, and the rest of the team is healthy. And this will be head coach Joe Missoula's second season. Do you think he's the right fit for the team? Yeah, I think maybe last year was overwhelming for him considering the circumstances when he took over for Ime Udoka. I think he's more comfortable in his own skin this year, more settled you know, new coaching staff, guys that he chose, guys that he's familiar with. So I think the environment is a lot better for Missoula, and I think he'll be a better fit this year. Okay, and prediction time. How do you see this season playing out and, dare I ask, ending for the Celtics? Well, there's no excuses this year. If they have the mental fortitude and health, they should win the championship. They're one of the more talented teams in the NBA, now, who knows what's going to happen in May and June and then when the playoffs hit, but they are one of the best teams in the NBA and have a better than good shot to win the championship, better than they've had the last few years. And what else? What other big issues are you thinking about for this season? Well, the NBA is cracking down on the load management and the rest, so there will be no more players just sitting out for the sake of it. You know, they're trying to avoid teams tanking. So a lot of little issues that are going into it. The Celtics just have to get chemistry, get closer, get the cohesion, play together. The team that I think fans will see will not be as good as the team they'll see in December and January when they get that chemistry and cohesion. So that's just something to look out for. Gary Washburn covers the Celtics for the Boston Globe. Thank you very much. Thank you. Coming up at 825 on WBUR's Morning Edition, we go to North Dakota to look at how long-established communities are responding to a fast-growing population of immigrants arriving to meet employers' demand for new workers. It's 749. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Welland Montessori School, a five-time winner of Boston Parents' Family Favorite Award, educating toddler to grade 8. Open house November 5th. More at Welland.org. And MIT Museum featuring freshly installed galleries and a lineup of dynamic programs and events that will feed your curiosity. Plan your visit today. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. House lawmakers are expected to vote today on whether to elect Louisiana Congressman Republican Mike Johnson as House Speaker. U.S. officials say they're concerned an Israeli ground invasion of Gaza may spark more conflict in the region. 
And Hurricane Otis hit Mexico's South Pacific coast as a Category 5 storm this morning and is expected to continue inland through tonight. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include the law firm of Nutter, McLennan and Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. Clouds move in throughout the day today while temperatures rise to the low 70s. It'll be mostly cloudy by tonight and in the upper 50s. Skies clear overnight for a mostly sunny day tomorrow. will warm up to the mid-70s. Right now it's 52 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Abortion has been banned in more than a dozen states for over a year. Researchers have tried to understand whether those restrictions led to fewer abortions. As NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin reports, a new study came to a surprising conclusion. Despite all the bans, the number of abortions over the past year has actually increased. There were 2,200 more abortions across the country, according to the Society of Family Planning's We Count project. Ushima Upadhyay is a co-chair and a professor at the University of California, San Francisco. It's not a huge number relative to the total number of abortions, but we do note that it is an increase when we were expecting a decline. To put that 2,200 number in context, the total number of abortions researchers documented was over a million. WeCount's new report contains a table showing each state's monthly number, and it's clear, as abortions zeroed out in states including Alabama, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Missouri, the number shot up in other states including Illinois, North Carolina, and New Mexico. Many of these what we call surge states border states with abortion bans and serve as access points for people who travel from other states to get care. Upadhyay emphasizes the shift of abortions from one state's column to another isn't simple or easy. Behind those numbers are people calling clinics in a rush, lining up funds and childcare, and traveling sometimes thousands of miles. Megan Jafo of the Chicago Abortion Fund added that the increase also obscures how hard funds like hers are working to help people move around the country. While I think we're grateful that more people have been able to access their abortion than we thought, what we're doing is not sustainable for anyone. One thing not captured in these numbers are self-managed abortions, when people order abortion medication through the mail, for instance, and take the pills at home. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. China's government is cracking down on queer and feminist groups as part of the state's broader controls on civil society. So Chinese-speaking communities outside the country are creating spaces for free expression. NPR's Emily Fang takes us to one of them in New York City. Yes, increasing political controls in China are limiting cultural production and dissent in the country. But it's also given opportunities to the Chinese-speaking diaspora outside government control. Opportunities like this one. This is the Feminist Talk Show, a Mandarin Chinese language event. 
It uses spoken word, stand-up, and skits to satirize misogyny and political repression. And it's held in New York City every month. It's a form of expression that differentiates this generation of the Chinese diaspora from previous ones. This one is well-educated and savvy at navigating both American and Chinese pop culture. I went to this show recently. The crowd was a mix of Chinese students, recent immigrants, academics, and activists, ready to laugh and cry together. In one skit, actors mimic the main Chinese state evening news bulletin. But instead of delivering blandly worded copy applauding state policy, they poke fun at domestic politics and birth policy. We are anti-censorship. Uh, when there are things people cannot talk, talk about in China, we talk here. That's the room, that's the space we have overseas. This is Fifi, one of the talk show's founders and performers. She asked that only her first name be used because of fear of retribution in China, where many of her friends and family still live. She said she was inspired by an online feminist talk show that once was held inside China. Those performances were recently forced to stop. So last year, Fifi realized she wanted to continue the show's legacy. And she stuck with the talk show format because she thinks comedy is a powerful tool. When you're a woman, when you are from LGBTQ plus community, when you are, you know, living under censorship and uh, constantly feel oppressed by patriarchy, societies, and uh, government, it's like perfect tool to express our thoughts. The talk show organizers film each performance and share it with people in China via social media, though the videos usually end up quickly taken down. This is because state attitudes towards LGBTQ communities have hardened in China in recent years. Darius Longarino, a senior fellow who studies Chinese civil society at the Paul Tsai China Center, says China's security apparatus are nervous about LGBTQ issues. LGBTQ groups or organizations are looked at as like potential pawns or you know, Trojan horses of foreign forces, and that it undermines some of the state natalism goals of increasing marriage, increasing births. Which is why communities like the feminist talk show in New York are becoming more prominent. It's a platform for cosmopolitan young Chinese people to express themselves. <laughs> Here, one performer named Ray shares her experience telling her mom in China she was a lesbian and that she had already married a woman. People in the Chinese diaspora are very cautious given their different political inclinations. So even though New York has so many Chinese people, it is very difficult to make new friends with other queer or feminism supporting people. But simply by talking about these topics publicly and enjoying each other's company, they're practicing a quiet form of resistance. One of the talk show performers named Eileen Zhang originally wanted to return to China to work on feminism-related issues after studying in the U.S. But for now, this comedy talk show is her contribution from overseas.
if we can't really do anything that's like large scale or quote unquote like you know revolutionary, I think at least we can use our voice to raise other people's awareness. And perhaps by being outside China, a voice that's harder for the powerful Chinese state to silence. Emily Fang, NPR News, New York. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Low 70s today under skies that will grow increasingly cloudy throughout the day, mostly overcast tonight in the upper 50s. Right now it's 53 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. WBUR supporters include Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org And Endless Energy, helping Massachusetts residents understand their options when faced with aging or inefficient heating systems. Learn how to heat smart at GoEndlessEnergy.com. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson is the GOP's latest nominee for House Speaker. He'll try to secure the position today in a floor vote. It's Wednesday, October 25th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, U.S. officials are concerned that a potential Israeli invasion of Gaza may spark a wider regional conflict. Also this hour, tensions are increasing in North Dakota in response to arriving immigrants. It's wild just the amount of diversity we've seen in North Dakota rapidly. And I think it's fair to acknowledge that there are increased costs and there are increased things you have to figure out. And Massachusetts and other states are suing Meta, alleging its social media platforms can be addicting. Plus, the push to provide more services to thousands of children in the Massachusetts family shelter system who are too young for school. A lot of them were just sitting around, not really doing much, picking at uh, the rug, the carpet, the walls. Increasing clouds in low 70s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. The Israeli military says it carried out more than 400 airstrikes on Gaza yesterday, and the bombing did not stop overnight. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry says more than 6,500 people have been killed there, and 2,700 of them are children. The Hamas-run Interior Ministry says the, quote, massive air bombardment pounded Gaza overnight, contributing to the unprecedented death toll since the Hamas attack on October 7th. The attacks came as Gaza continues to suffer severe shortages of food, water, and medicine, despite the arrival of some truckloads filled with humanitarian aid. Separately, the IDF said it thwarted an assault by a group of Hamas militants who came ashore on an Israeli beach just north of Gaza. Israel responded with air, sea, and ground forces. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Jerusalem. President Biden may make comments today about the war between Israel and Hamas militants. He'll also be welcoming the Prime Minister of Australia to the White House. Australian leader Anthony Albanese will also be the guest of honor tonight at a White House state dinner. The House of Representatives is expected to vote today to elect a speaker. Republicans have nominated Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson. 
NPR's Deirdre Walsh reports he's the fourth nominee in three weeks the GOP hopes can get the gavel. Johnson won the House GOP vote after multiple ballots. And just hours after another Republican, Tom Emmer from Minnesota, was nominated but was forced to withdraw because he couldn't lock down the votes for a full House vote. Johnson vowed he'll get the House back to work. We're going to serve the people of this country. We're going to restore their faith in this Congress. You're going to see a new form of government, and we are going to move this quickly. This group here is ready to govern. Johnson needs the support of almost all House Republicans. If he gets the votes, the new speaker starts with immediate challenges. He'll need to negotiate a deal to avoid a government shutdown next month and navigate a large foreign aid package for Israel and Ukraine. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News. The Senate has voted 98-0 to zero to approve President Biden's nominee to be the chief of the Federal Aviation Administration. Michael Whitaker is a former FAA deputy administrator. An off-duty Alaska Airlines pilot is facing scores of federal and Oregon state charges. Joseph Emerson tried to cut off a jet's engines mid-flight on Sunday. He was riding in the cockpit with the crew on duty, who overpowered him before he could do it. Aubrey Gavella was aboard that flight, too, and she says the passengers were rattled. No fight, no commotion, um, just nervous passengers, but quietly nervous. Emerson, meanwhile, faces 83 counts of attempted murder in Oregon. Police in Portland released information yesterday about the off-duty pilot. They say Emerson told them he'd taken hallucinogenic mushrooms two days before the flight. It's NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts has ambitious plans to help tackle climate change, but setting goals for reducing emissions and making those goals a reality are two different things. To help bridge that gap, the state's top climate official published a new report today that sets out strategies and recommendations. WBOR's Miriam Wasser reports. Meeting the state's climate goals will transform the entire economy. So the main takeaway of this report from the state's climate chief is that Massachusetts needs to take an all-of-government approach to cutting emissions, building more clean energy, and increasing resiliency against extreme weather. One example is to focus on solutions to climate problems that also create health or housing or transportation benefits. The report also suggests creating a regional body to coordinate protecting coastal areas from sea level rise, as well as rethinking the design of the state's energy efficiency program, MassSave. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. MBTA officials hope to relaunch an effort to expand bus service in the state. They say the initiative stalled due to worker shortages and budget constraints. The state released a bus network expansion plan yesterday. Transit leaders say the project could increase bus service in the state by about 25 percent. Massachusetts's Secretary of State is pushing for legislation that would help protect seniors from financial scammers. Bill Galvin testified yesterday on Beacon Hill in support of a bill that would allow banks to briefly freeze suspicious transactions. He says these scammers have gotten more sophisticated in recent years. They present a circumstance with a degree of urgency, whether it's broken equipment or a relative being held or relative in trouble that preys on these people's anxiety and their sincere concern for their relatives. Galvin says at least 10 other states have similar protections in place.
A food pantry for students and staff at Roxbury Community College is now open. The so-called Roxbox is meant to address food insecurity on campus. School officials tell the Boston Globe it's set up like a supermarket. The pantry was funded by over $200,000 in grants. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Bruins remain undefeated so far this season. They beat the Chicago Blackhawks last night on the road. Final score was 3-0. The Celtics' regular season tips off in New York tonight. They'll play the Knicks at 7. Breezy today with increasing clouds throughout the day. Temperatures will be in the low 70s. Tonight, mostly cloudy with lows in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, we return to sunny skies and temperatures rise to the mid-70s. It's 53 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include the law firm Cooley LLP. With offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. For 19 days, Gaza has been relentlessly bombarded by Israeli airstrikes in what is believed to be preparation for a ground invasion. Entire neighborhoods in Gaza have been leveled while Israel says it's targeting Hamas's network of underground tunnels. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez called Israel's strategy a violation of international humanitarian law. Protecting civilians can never mean using them as human shields. Protecting civilians does not mean ordering more than one million people to evacuate to the south, where there is no shelter, no food, no water, no medicine and no fuel, and then continuing to bomb the south itself. At the UN Security Council meeting, the United States rejected calls for a ceasefire and instead called for a humanitarian pause in the fighting. Now, though, the question remains, when might Israel start a ground invasion and what concerns do American leaders have about Israel's strategy? For more on this, we called NPR's Tom Bowman, who covers the Pentagon. Tom, good morning. Hey, Michelle. So, Tom, the U.S. Secretary of Defense has been in regular contact with his Israeli counterpart. There appears to be some concern building among U.S. officials about this offensive. What more can you tell Well, a few things. There's concern about this all spreading throughout the region should Israel invade. And with maybe the Iranian-backed militants in Lebanon, Hezbollah firing its vast amount of missiles into Israel. Concern as well about that Israel may not have thought through the implications of a massive ground invasion of Gaza. So, you know, top officials are asking, what are your goals? And what about civilians, keeping them safe? We're already seeing reports of thousands of Palestinian civilian deaths, and the U.S. is warning the Israelis that this will be tough and brutal. Michelle, worse than the fight to defeat the Islamic State in the Iraqi city of Mosul back in 2016. Yeah, we're talking a vast network of underground tunnels, booby traps, a close quarter of fighting with hundreds of thousands of civilians in the middle. Say more about the the fears that this conflict could spread. What are your sources saying to you about this? Well, again, it's a major concern is Iran itself getting involved somehow. That's why you see the American aircraft carries the attack aircraft, the missile defense systems. 
that uh, will also protect U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria. By the way, I'm told this is all part of a long-standing U.S. plan to defend Israel. It's been on the shelf for some time. It's not just kind of a haphazard movement of armaments and troops. And would you say more about that? What would the priorities for the U.S. military be in this scenario? One of the priorities is keeping U.S. troops in the region safe. Uh, there are a couple of thousand troops in Iraq, uh, 800 to 900 in Syria. They've already been attacked by Iranian-backed militias, but those uh, attacks by missiles and drones have been dealt with. So, 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 Tom, there's one more question I really want to get to, which is that President Biden has talked about and has openly said that he would like Israel to learn from the mistakes the U.S. made after 9-11. You've been talking to a lot of officials about that. What are those mistakes? Well, the mistakes for the U.S. were invading two countries, Afghanistan and Iraq, overthrowing their governments and thinking this will all be better, all fueled by fear of more terrorist attacks or suspected weapons of mass destructions. And in both cases, you had guerrilla warfare that lasted for two decades, really continuing to this day. The same could be true here. You destroy Hamas, but who governs Gaza? And are you creating more militants by your tactics? That's NPR's Tom Bowman. Tom, thank you. You're welcome. Hundreds of Ukrainian Americans were in Washington, D.C. this week to try and convince congressional leaders to continue arming Ukraine in its war against Russia. Their visit comes at a crucial time. President Biden wants to combine funding for Ukraine with funding for Israel as that nation continues to battle Hamas. And at the same time, further funding for Ukraine is at the heart of the battle for the House leadership contest. Now, a number of Ukrainian veterans are also asking for continued support on the battlefield. One of them is Andriana Susak Arekta. She's a senior sergeant in the Ukrainian Armed Forces and head of the Ukrainian Women Veteran Movement. She was injured near the front line in her son late last year, and she joins us now. Andriana, you've been speaking with people on the Hill this week, given the Israel-Gaza war and the House leadership contest. What was your pitch for continued support for Ukraine? Good morning, uh, United States. Uh, my speech was about uh, that Ukrainian government and Ukrainians uh, are grateful and thankful for support. But uh, the war is going on and uh, we saw that the evil that we are faced uh, have the same name like Russia, uh, Hamas, uh, Iran. And so the counteroffensive is going on in Ukraine and uh, the Russia has an endless amount of troops and an endless amount of ammunition and uh, delaying or supporting to Ukraine means a lot of loss. Uh, and I was, for example, for, it was a privilege to meet to, uh, yesterday Air Force CQ Charles Q. Brown, and I just asked him, what will United States do when Ukrainian armed forces will be without soldiers? When we out, who will protect freedom and liberty and uh, stability of Europe and the West without Ukrainian armed forces? Are you worried at all that with so much else going on that Ukraine will be not remembered or not thought of as much right now? Uh, yes, I'm worried about because, for example, now we need uh, air superiority, we need ammunition superiority, we ask for uh, long-range cruise missiles to heat uh, uh, logistical war store, to heat ammunition war store of Russia. And uh, I'm worried because uh, I saw that uh, uh, this coalition between uh, uh, Tyrannium's 
states like uh, North Korea, Iran and Russia, uh, Hamas, uh, uh, this means that today uh, the world uh, uh, face uh, with uh, the evil that's uh, united and we need this uh, support from United States, not uh, because we just want this support, but because yeah. we want to save people's life and to save civilians. What do you think about President Biden, Biden combining the funding for Ukraine with funding for Israel and Taiwan? Uh, as a soldier, I can say, and as a Ukrainian, as a mom, I can say that uh, I know uh, what is war is. And uh, um, I see like uh, the sign in Israel as uh, we faced and see this sign in Ukraine every day. Because, uh, for example, in Ukraine, there is no uh, safe place because uh, the uh, uh, aviation missiles, the uh, cruise missiles are flying everywhere in Ukraine. And uh, it's okay that uh, uh, we have, uh, that the United States can help not only Ukraine, but also Israel and Taiwan. In about 20 seconds, can you just make one case why Americans should continue to care about Ukraine? I think that we together are in the boat against evil. I think that uh, we together must uh, um, save liberty, save freedom. And I uh, think that uh, uh, now we are on the battlefield, but we, only with your support. Andriana Susak Arekta is the head of the organization Ukrainian Women Veteran Movement. Thank you very much. Thank you. The National Football League will be going for gold at the 2028 Olympics. The International Olympic Committee announced last week that flag football will be one of the sports added to the summer games in Los Angeles. The NFL sees the Olympics as an opportunity to expand its overseas fan base. Flag football is American football without the tackling, and the NFL has invested heavily in this gentler version of the game. They wanted to see it kind of grow. They wanted to see it evolve and really saw this opportunity of flag football continue to grow in scale and grow globally. That's Izel Reese, a former NFL player who runs the league's flag football program. The NFL has been trying with mixed success to expand its global audience. It's been playing regular season games in London and Germany. And 20 years ago, the NFL began creating youth flag football programs overseas. Today, it's in 12 countries, including the UK, Ghana, Australia, and China. We currently have over 700,000 kids participating. And if you look at any of the sports that were added to the Olympics and any of the sports under consideration year over year, it's important to see are, are kids playing, are youth interested in it. The NFL has taken a page out of the NBA's marketing playbook. In 1992, the NBA sent the Dream Team to the Barcelona Olympics. Now, among the Hall of Famers on that team were old Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, and Magic Johnson. Barkley behind the back for Drexler. He finds Muller. Touch pass to Magic for three. Yes! The Dream Team not only won gold, but also won new European fans and interest among talented athletes. Before the 92 Olympics, the NBA had 23 international players. Today, there are more than 100, including all-stars Nikola Jokic from the Denver Nuggets and Giannis Antetokounmpo from the Milwaukee Bucks. Now, the NFL plans to send its own star power to the Olympics. First and 10, the fake, 
Good block in there, and down it goes. Caught at the 30. This is the dynamic hill. He's in for six. Tyreek Hill. Touchdown. You can hear how fast that was. Miami Dolphins receiver Tyreek Hill is just one of the big-name NFL stars who says he wants to play in the 2028 Summer Games. And who knows, maybe Tay-Tay Taylor Swift might show up to watch some of the games too. This is NPR News. Good morning. You're starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we look at how the chaos surrounding the search for a new House speaker may impact the outcome of next year's elections. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, with sustainably sourced sectionals, sofas, ottomans, and more during their annual upholstery event through October. CircleFurniture.com and the Peabody Essex Museum presenting the Salem Witch Trials, Restoring Justice. On view now. Learn more at PEM.org. Martin Scorsese's new film, Killers of the Flower Moon, celebrates Osage culture with help from members of the Osage Nation. The movie was going to be made with or without us, and instead of making it without us, they made it with us in such a huge, huge way. I'm Mary Louise Kelly here from the indigenous people who worked on the movie, both on and off screen, on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. We'll warm up to highs in the low 70s today. Clouds will move in throughout the day, and by this evening, it'll be mostly overcast. Temperatures fall to the upper 50s tonight. Tomorrow, even warmer with highs in the mid-70s, and it'll be mostly sunny. Right now, it's 53 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station, and from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world, and every purchase supports NPR's high-quality journalism. Available to adults 21 or older, nprwineclub.org. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography, kauffman.org. From Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. When people think about immigration, they probably think about the southern border. But the immigrant population in the U.S. is growing fast in states that are far away from there. Consider what's happening in North Dakota, where the foreign-born population is climbing faster than it has in decades. Immigrants are being drawn to the state by employers who are desperate to fill jobs. But some people are wary about rapid changes in their communities, as NPR's Joel Rose reports. The newest residents of Wapaton, North Dakota, have come a long way to get here. Right now, my city, everyday bomb. Roman doesn't want to use his last name because some of his family are still in Nikopol, Ukraine, just a few miles from Russian-occupied territory, and he fears he might endanger them. Roman is working on the factory floor at Comdel Innovation, right near the border with Minnesota. It's a company that manufactures medical devices and other precision equipment. How is it working here? Nice. Nice. Beautiful country, beautiful people. Roman is one of about a dozen workers Comdel has hired so far through a humanitarian program called Uniting for Ukraine. So how have things gone for you guys so far? You came in last night. Did you sleep this morning okay? That's Jim Albrecht, the company's CEO, welcoming four new arrivals from Ukraine who arrived late last night. Like a lot of employers in North Dakota, Comdel has a tough time filling open jobs. The state is rural and it's cold. Albrecht says Americans generally do not want to move here. This climate is not necessarily for everyone. He says the company can't keep growing if it can't find more workers. It's customers asking us to do things and us trying to find the people to make it happen. And we've had to say no. The beginning of this year, we made a decision that, hey, we've got to do something. There's a labor shortage across much of the U.S., but in this part of the country, it's extreme. North Dakota's unemployment rate is under 2%. Businesses across the state are recruiting immigrants to fill jobs in manufacturing, in oil production, and nursing. A lot of my friends are also in the U.S., and they say, why? Why North Dakota? It's so freaking cold. Roy Lubian is from the Philippines. She's one of about 100 Filipino nurses hired by Sanford Medical Center, the main hospital in Bismarck, the state capital. Lubian says she likes the laid-back pace in North Dakota and that she can save money to send back to her family in the Philippines. For sure, my family, they are the reason why I'm here in North Dakota. There's a lot of opportunities for you to secure your financial status. A lot of overtime pickup shifts. It's bringing new folks in that are really wanting to work. Brent Sanford is a former lieutenant governor of North Dakota. He's now working for the state's petroleum industry to fill jobs in the Bakken oil fields in western North Dakota through a program called Bakken Grow, short for Global Recruitment of Oilfield Workers. As hard as this is, it's been easier to get 40 Ukrainian people here into these jobs than 40 people from you name the other state. In North Dakota, the foreign-born population is growing in a way it hasn't in a century. Census Bureau estimates show the percentage of people born outside the U.S. jumped more than 13 percent between 2021 and 2022. That's a significant shift in a state that remains overwhelmingly rural, white, and conservative. But there's still deep ambivalence here about immigration, and those concerns have occasionally erupted into moments of bitter debate. We're not anywhere... For a little while in 2019, North Dakota was at the center of a nationwide debate over refugee resettlement. The Trump administration had just empowered local communities to say no to accepting refugees. That policy was later struck down in court, but it touched off an impassioned argument in Bismarck. The city was only slated to receive a few dozen refugees that year. Yet hundreds of people showed up at a local school. We have jobs. 
more jobs than we know what to do with. I want to help everybody too. The math doesn't work. I do see this as a racism dressed in stereotypic misinformation. We need to take care of Burley County and the residents and people here first. The debate went back and forth for almost four hours. Finally, the county commission voted three to two, allowing resettlement to continue, although it moved to cap the number of refugees at 25 for the year. A lot of people were unhappy with that outcome, including Robert Field. It isn't that we're racist and we're out burning crosses and against anybody. Field is a retired welder in Bismarck. He says there was a lot of concern about whether refugees would strain local services like schools and hospitals. It wasn't anything about trying to keep outsiders out. We just didn't want people dumped here. Refugee advocates were at that meeting, too, trying to defend the program. Leah Hargrove is the executive director of the nonprofit Bismarck Global Neighbors, which helps new arrivals with integration. I felt really frustrated with what I was hearing from the people sitting around me. You know, just things that, that aren't true, and they're not true anywhere in the United States. For one, these refugees do not get free cars. They are not illegal immigrants. They are extensively vetted before they come to the U.S. And the costs don't all fall on the state or local community. The federal government does pay for some benefits. Still, Hargrove says she understands why there's concern. It's wild, uh, just the amount of diversity we've seen in North Dakota rapidly. And, and I think it's fair to acknowledge that there are increased costs and there are increased things you have to figure out. That's not different than the rest of the country is trying to figure out, though. It's just new for us. That was in Bismarck, which has not seen a lot of immigration until recently. Across the state in Fargo, refugee resettlement has been going on for decades. And there's been pushback there, too. To me, we should know what's going on. And the other thing is like the... Here's City Commissioner Dave Pepcorn talking to a local news outlet in 2021. We have people making obligations for the taxpayers of Fargo. That's the bottom line. For years, Pepcorn has been raising concerns about the costs of resettlement, even as studies have shown that refugees are an economic plus for their communities over the long run. Refugees are not a burden. They're just looking for opportunity, just like anybody else. Yamal Day is a member of the Board of Education in Fargo. She was the first black woman to be elected to public office here, and possibly anywhere in North Dakota. Day was born in what is now South Sudan. She moved to Fargo for college 15 years ago and never left. Day thinks attitudes about immigration in her city are changing. Once you get to know your neighbor, you get to know who they really are. You know, we want to make sure that we support our kids. We want to see them succeed in life, just like any regular families in America or in the state of North Dakota in general. That's how I look at it. Day hopes the whole state will look at it that way, too, because a lot more immigrants may be heading here, whether North Dakota is ready or not. Joel Rose, NPR News, Fargo. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel tells us about a new push to provide more services for children in the state family shelter system who are too young for school. It's 829.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. House Republicans will try again today to elect a speaker. Congressman Mike Johnson of Louisiana is the latest GOP nominee to replace Kevin McCarthy, who was ousted three weeks ago when Democrats voted with a group of conservative Republicans against McCarthy. President Biden's nominee to lead the Federal Aviation Administration has been confirmed. NPR's Joel Rose says Michael Whitaker was approved unanimously amid signs of stress in the air travel system. Michael Whitaker is a veteran airline executive and a former deputy administrator at the FAA. He worked most recently as chief operating officer of a company that's developing an air taxi. Whitaker will take over at a time when the FAA is facing some major challenges, including a series of close calls at airports across the country, a shortage of air traffic controllers, and aging technology that resulted in a brief nationwide halt to flights in January. The FAA has been without a Senate-confirmed administrator for almost 19 months. Whitaker was President Biden's second choice for the job. The nomination of Denver International Airport CEO Phil Washington languished for months amid opposition from Republicans. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. California Governor Gavin Newsom is in Beijing today where he met with China's President Xi Jinping. The governor is on a week-long visit to China. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Massachusetts officials are pushing for the creation of a baby bond program. It's part of an effort to address the state's racial wealth gap. Under a new proposal, babies in certain state programs would be automatically enrolled in a trust fund. They'd be able to access the money once they turned 18 for things like education or housing. President Joe Biden will not be on the 2024 New Hampshire primary ballot. That's because the president is following new guidance from the National Democratic Convention. The organization asked candidates not to file in New Hampshire because Democrats there disagree with plans to begin the primaries in other states. New Hampshire historically held the first Democratic primaries in the nation. Salem officials are once again telling visitors to use public transportation to travel to the city. This comes as they prepare for one more busy weekend before Halloween. City leaders say streets become congested and parking can be extremely difficult with the crush of cars. In addition to train and ferry service, the city has also set up satellite parking and shuttle buses. A first-of-its-kind study from Boston University looks at the degenerative brain disease known as CTE in rugby players. It concludes that the longer a player's career lasts, the greater the risk for developing CTE. Torstein is an associate professor who worked on the study. He and fellow researchers looked at the donated brains of elite rugby players. Not everybody who played rugby developed CTE, but about two-thirds of them did. And of those ones that that did develop CTE significantly, most of them played at an amateur level. CTE can currently only be diagnosed after death. Steen says he hopes studies like this can lead to a diagnosis of CTE while a patient is still alive. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. The Bruins beat the Chicago Blackhawks last night 3-0. That brings the Bees to a 6-0 start to their season. Regular season basketball gets underway for the Celtics tonight. They'll take on the Knicks in New York City starting at 7.
It'll gradually grow mostly cloudy today. Temperatures will rise to highs in the low 70s. Those fall to the upper 50s tonight. The clouds move out overnight, making way for a mostly sunny day tomorrow with highs in the mid-70s. Right now it's 54 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work, with online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's morning edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. The House GOP nominated a fourth person, Mike Johnson of Louisiana, to try and replace Kevin McCarthy as Speaker. Tom Emmer of Minnesota dropped out yesterday when it became apparent that he wouldn't have the votes to be elected by the full House. Now, Johnson's bid is expected to be voted on today. However, this all begs the question, how could this Speaker's race affect fundraising for the Republican Party and polling going into next year's election? For more on this, we've called up Stephen Stivers. He's a former Republican. Republican congressman from Ohio who also ran the National Republican Congressional Committee, which works to get Republicans elected to the House. So how does all this, everything we're seeing, uh, shape next year's election, possibly? Well, good morning, Abe. And this this speaker is the number one fundraiser for the Republicans in the House. Uh, Kevin McCarthy was on pace to raise half a billion dollars, uh, raising record amounts of money, very successful in that part of his job. And Mike Johnson, who uh, might be able to get to 217, we will see, um, has not been historically a prolific fundraiser. But as they say, politics is a team sport, and hopefully uh, he'll be able to get some help from Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise, who is his fellow Louisianan, and uh, who are both great fundraisers. Um, I'm not sure that this 23-day speaker debacle is going to be the catalyzing event for the 2024 elections. In the Why House. not? I mean, Why not? It hasn't affected anybody. It is a year too long? Will we forget? And a year is too long, and something mm. will happen between now and then. Now, it has the potential to impact people's lives because we're three weeks from a government shutdown. And um, my friend Jake Sherman wrote this morning that, you know, if Mike... Johnson wins, he's going to go straight from T-ball to the major leagues, sitting down with Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden and and McConnell to negotiate uh, a government funding bill immediately. Uh, There's a war in Israel. There's a war in Ukraine. And if we can't do something that the American people think we need to do with regard to those two things, those could be catalyzing events. So, I mean, there's forcing events coming at the House Republicans that are going to force them to come together. I also think there's a lot of folks that are just tired and ready to, you know, the standard goes down a little bit at some point. Uh, At the beginning, you know, you want somebody who's perfect. And then after three or four failed attempts, you're like, you'll take somebody who's kind of acceptable. And uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to say anything negative about Mike Johnson. Mike Johnson, by all accounts, and I served with him, is liked by a lot of people. If Johnson is elected today and funding for Ukraine, for Israel and government funding gets all worked out, 
Are you saying that a year from now, everything will be all forgiven? I'm saying, yeah, I'm saying I don't think the American people are going to say, gee, for 23 days, we didn't have a speaker and we're going to vote for a Democrat for the for the U.S. House because of that uh, in November of 24, a year and two weeks from now when, you know, people have had a lot of other things happen. I, I don't think this is a I think it's a circus, but I don't think it's a major event that's going to impact the 2024 elections. But again, it. it interplays with bigger issues that will or could impact the 24 elections. All right. Uh, Stephen Sivers is a former congressman for Ohio's 15th district. Uh, Thank you very much for weighing in here. Thanks a lot. 41 states are suing Meta for allegedly designing products that addict teens and worsen their mental health. State prosecutors say some features of Facebook and Instagram violate consumer protection and child safety laws. NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen is with us now to tell us more about this. Good morning, Bobby. Good morning. Okay, tell us about the case that the states are making. Sure, the case boils down to this. State prosecutors say Meta created something they're calling dopamine manipulating features, and they're features everyone who uses social media know very well, right? The algorithms that decide what we see when we log on to Facebook and Instagram, the ability to like a post, being able to scroll endlessly without limits. These features got teens hooked, and the states say Meta knew that teens' self-esteem would suffer once they got addicted to Facebook and Instagram. Now, you might be thinking, okay, but how is that against the law? And the states say deliberately designing a product in a way that you know violates consumer protection laws. Some observers are likening these suits to the lawsuits of the 1990s against big tobacco. I talked to Jean Twangy about this. She's a professor of psychology at San Diego State University, and she says she hopes these lawsuits force Meta to change. These days, when we see people smoking, they're in the small minority, and we think, what are they doing? Maybe we'll think that way in the future about 12-year-olds and 14-year-olds being on social media. And what's Meta's response? Yeah, Meta issued a statement saying it shares the concern of state prosecutors. Like them, they want teens on Facebook and Instagram to be safe. But, you know, Meta hasn't directly addressed the substance of these suits. Legal experts are expecting Meta to invoke something called Section 230. Sounds very technical, but it's a decades-old federal law that protects tech companies from lawsuits over what users post on their sites. And for years, the law made it nearly impossible to win a successful civil lawsuit against a tech company. But this is starting to change. Increasingly, there is this novel legal tactic that is getting around Section 230, and it involves suing companies over essentially shoddy design, looking at social media almost as a product that should have been recalled because it was harmful. And that is similar to what the states are doing here. As briefly as you can, say more about what this research does say about social media's effect on teen mental health. Yeah, you know, Michelle, this has sparked a lot of debate, but I talked to Twangy at San Diego State University about it since she herself has been a researcher on some really large studies that have looked at teens nationwide. In fact, some of her work is cited by prosecutors in these lawsuits, and she says adolescents are in the midst of a mental health crisis. Consider this fact. Between 2011 and 2021, teen depression has doubled. And while there's many ways to explain this, Twangy says the obvious one to her is social media. No other explanation really fits for why we have a doubling in teen depression at a time when the economy was doing well and crime was going down and almost every other indicator for teens was getting better, but they were spending a lot more time on social media, a lot less time with each other face-to-face and less time sleeping. 
And now courts will decide whether Meta ignoring similar research constitutes breaking the law or just business as usual. That is NPR's Bobby Allen. Bobby, thank you. Thanks, Michelle. NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the potential impact of the recent lifting of sanctions on Venezuela's energy sector. It'll pave the way for the nation to export more crude oil. Increasing clouds today and low 70s, mostly cloudy tonight in the upper 50s, mostly sunny tomorrow in the mid 70s. Right now it's 54 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames. 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. And Loomis Sales, a performance-driven investment manager navigating challenging financial markets around the globe since 1926. Learn more at loomissales.com. Boston-based shoemaker New Balance plans to open a new facility in New Hampshire. Company officials tell the Boston Business Journal the Londonderry plant is set to start making sneakers by 2025. This will be the sixth New Balance plant in New England. Officials will break ground on the new location tomorrow. The president of Fitchburg State University plans to retire at the end of the school year. Richard Lapidus has been leading the school since 2015. The university says it'll conduct a national search for a new president. A new location of Braintree-based Widowmaker Brewery opens today in Brighton. This is the brewery's second location. The company plans a grand opening celebration on Saturday. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack Repertory Theater with Gaslight, a new adaptation of the gripping psychological thriller now through November 5th. Tickets at MRT.org. And the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com. This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. There are more than 10,000 children in the Massachusetts family shelter system, and about half are too young to go to school. That means they're often missing out on the services and enrichment a classroom can offer. As WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel reports, there's a new push to get these kids better access to play spaces and activities. Yeah, where's the O? Good job. You got it. Oh. Oh. In a Boston shelter, there's a special room tucked at the end of a hallway. It's a playroom where kids sing and read, do dress up, and sometimes cry. 20-month-old Devon looks at big magnetic letters with his mom, Jasmine Pryor. What's this? D. D. Good job. D. D. Yeah, D for Devon. Pryor gets Devon settled in before leaving him with volunteers. She says it's good for him to socialize, and she likes the rare moment of freedom. I love it. It's a great help. Um, I'm able to get some things done, chores, and cook dinner and stuff like that. 
As a kid, Pryor was in a shelter with her mom. She remembers a playroom there, but it's far from a guarantee these days. In the past year, the state's family shelter system has doubled in size, and more than 3,000 households are now in hotels and motels that often don't have toys, books, or play spaces for children. Rita Sears from Making Opportunity Count manages a hotel-turned-shelter in Concord. She says when she first arrived, there was nothing for kids to do. A lot of them were just sitting around, not really doing much, picking at uh, the rug, the carpet, the walls. Other kids, she says, had lots of energy and nowhere to get it out. They're just running back and forth constantly. When you're trying to get work done and you hear 15 kids running up and down the hall, It's a lot, so it was very evident that we needed something for the kiddos. Sears teamed up with the nonprofit Horizons for Homeless Children to create a playroom at the hotel. But the play space can only accommodate a fraction of all the young children who live in the shelter. And it's only open a handful of hours a week. There's so much demand, we were begging for volunteers so that we could add more play space days. Horizons for Homeless Children has a contract with the state to build 12 other shelter playrooms over the next two years. But there are many more shelter locations. We'll go as fast as we can. Kate Barand is the CEO of Horizons. She says a stimulating environment is key for brain development in the first few years of life. And the shelter environment matters because the average shelter stay is over a year. And Barand expects that number to grow, since many shelter residents are migrants waiting for permission from the federal government to work so they can support their families and move out of shelters. They will be in these hotels for very long periods of time. And I know everyone keeps using the word temporary. This is not ending. There is no place for these families to go, particularly where they don't have work permits. So Baran would like to bring portable classrooms to hotel and motel parking lots. And she envisions training parents to become childcare providers to fill the teacher deficit. What's happening now is everything's one off. And the question is, isn't there a bigger option here? Barand is working with other advocates and now state agencies, and they are starting to bring more services to young children in the shelter system. Amy Kershaw is the Massachusetts Commissioner of Early Education and Care. I would say we're deep in the mapping of where the families currently are and where their needs are. State grants are helping support 15 new shelter playgroups with 20 more on the way. And the state is also making it easier for parents to apply for subsidized child care. Child advocates say they're hopeful the state is beginning to focus on the shelter system's littlest residents. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have news of hospitals in Gaza stopping operations as they run out of supplies. And Japan's Supreme Court has ruled that it is unconstitutional to require citizens to be sterilized before they can officially change genders. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Spalding Rehabilitation. For expert care, turn to Spalding. With three inpatient hospitals, a skilled nursing facility, and outpatient centers across Eastern Mass, Spalding is a world leader in advanced rehab treatment and research. U.S. News ranks Spalding number two for rehab care in the country. SpaldingRehab.org. 
I'm Deepa Fernandez. Former Food Network host Marcela Valladolid's widely popular online classes inspired her new cookbook about making food for family and friends. It was much more than me teaching them enchiladas, chiles rellenos. It was about connection. And that in turn became my biggest motivator in writing and developing these recipes. Next time, here and now, listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. U.N. officials say looming fuel shortages will curtail relief operations in Gaza. Massachusetts is joining dozens of other states in a lawsuit against social media company Meta. And the first major snowstorm of the season in the U.S. is set to hit the Mountain West this week. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs, cambridgeculinary.com or on their app. Clouds move in throughout the day today while temperatures rise to the low 70s. It'll be mostly cloudy by tonight and in the upper 50s. Skies clear overnight for a mostly sunny day tomorrow will warm up to the mid-70s. Right now it's 55 degrees in Boston. New tools to fight discrimination in housing. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Charles Schwab. Schwab believes every investor deserves to work with a firm they can count on, with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help. And by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. I'm David Brancaccio. U.S. financial regulators have just made big changes to fair lending rules. The Federal Reserve, the FDIC, and the Office of the Controller of the Currency over the last day have all approved changes to the Community Reinvestment Act. Marketplace's Washington correspondent Nancy Marshall-Genzer joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. The Community Reinvestment Act, that's from 1977. Yes, it is, David. And it was designed to stop the damage from redlining. For years, the federal government discouraged banks from offering mortgages to black borrowers. And there were even red lines drawn on maps around neighborhoods that banks were supposed to avoid. The Community Reinvestment Act required banks to serve the communities where they had physical branches, offering things like mortgages to everyone in those areas. Yeah, I've seen those old maps with the red lines. So now what's intended to be a new and improved CRA because banks don't just have physical branches now, right? Exactly. So the new final rule includes the business banks do online. So we're talking about things like mobile lending. So now they'll be assessed on how well they serve low-income areas where they make a lot of mortgages and other loans, both in person and online. And everybody loves all of this? 
No. <laughs> Small and mid-sized banks are exempted from some of the new data requirements in the final rule, and the new rule mostly won't take effect until 2026. But some banks still say it'll be a burden and could discourage them from lending in some areas. And some community activists had wanted the new rule to explicitly incorporate race, which it does not. Nancy, thank you for this. An hour and a half before markets open in earnest, S&P futures are down a quarter of a percent. NASDAQ futures are down half a percent, but Dow futures are up 86 or a quarter percent. By the way, the markets will open in about 35 minutes. General Motors driverless car testing vehicles are now banned from California amid safety concerns by regulators. GM has several days to appeal the ruling. Regulators say the GM cruise people failed to disclose full details of an incident where a driverless car dragged a pedestrian who had previously been struck by a separate hit-and-run driver. GM says driverless systems could eventually save lives. Boeing's third quarter results are in this morning. Not a profit, but a loss for the aircraft maker, a $1.6 billion one, which is actually an improvement. The stock is up 3.2% pre-market. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. Skin in the Game, where we explore marketplace matters through the lens of video games, a $300 billion a year industry bigger than music and movies combined. Today, research from the Harvard and Columbia Business Schools, it finds that using games to train employees can boost their performance. Wei Tsai is a Columbia Business School professor. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So in-service training for employees, I mean, since time immemorial, giving a trophy for salesperson of the month, that's a form of gamification. But what you study is something much more elaborate and I think immersive. Exactly. I mean, there could be different forms of games, but in this study, we actually look at really gamified training. So once employee log to the platform and the employees can design their own characters and compete by quickly answering questions about the firm and its offerings, employees can unlock locations with new challenges as they progress through the experience. And then eventually there will be a scoring system, a leaderboard that allow employees to track their progress, compare the performance to that of others, very much like a game. And before we get to what you found by studying this, give me a sense of what the problem is that companies are trying to solve. So the company is a service providing firm. The employees actually face clients a lot. But what they're really encouraging their employees to do is to cross-sell their services. So, for instance, the company has a lot of services, but like in one, let's say, engagement or project, employee only kind of work on one service or provide one type of service to the client. But the company would like to encourage the employees to also introduce their other services to the client as well. I see. So a big multinational professional services company. And according to the benchmarks you came up with, did they do better at what the company wanted them to do better at? Uh, Yes. So based on our results, the performance actually increased in terms of number of clients. Financial performance increases after the adoption of the system. 
we've been doing some reporting and we talked to a young person in Northern California who was just starting out in his video game development career and he got a job for a company that used games to teach doctors how to use complicated high-tech medical devices. This kind of gamified training has lots of different applications, even beyond what you studied here. Uh, you are exactly right. I mean, a lot of firms are doing this. So for instance, like Walmart introduced virtual reality to upgrade employee training. Coca-Cola uses virtual business simulation game. And then I think the idea is that firms really would like to make the training more effective, more interesting, to attract uh, employees' participation, and more importantly, to incentivize the true learning. Because, you know, like for the annual training, people may just, oh, okay, this is a mandatory training, I'll just do it, right, finish it. But then they might not really, really learn. Wei Tsai is assistant professor of business at the Columbia Business School in New York. She's co-author of the recent study, Learning or Playing, the Effect of Gamified Training on Performance. Professor, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. And a judge in Australia has ruled Carnival Cruise Lines negligent for being slow to cancel a cruise to New Zealand in early March of the first pandemic year. 660 passengers, 25% of them got COVID, 28 died. But then there, by then there have already been two coronavirus outbreaks on Carnival ships. The company says it's studying the ruling. Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. Low 70s today, and it'll grow increasingly cloudy throughout the day. Upper 50s and mostly cloudy tonight, mid-70s and mostly sunny tomorrow. It's 55 degrees in Boston. The BBC News Hour is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees, providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu met. And Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.